Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. Ladies and gentlemen, friends, comrades, companions, welcome to the fifth column. It's just me, Michael C. Moynihan, from Vice News Tonight, national correspondent. You're, if you listen to this podcast, you're used to that intro, but you're also used to the squawking of uh, usually three other people, Camille Foster, Matt Welch, and um, our arbiter of everything that's true and right, Anthony Fisher. Um, but that's not what we have today. So we have one of these special episodes that uh, you have heard here and there. They're mostly Camille's, and it's mostly Camille um, arguing with people about race, and the rest of us are too terrified to actually participate, so we allow him to do it alone. Um, today, we have something interesting, something special. Um, and it's about Venezuela. So you've heard about Venezuela in the news quite a bit recently. And if you're a regular listener to, uh, to this podcast, I'm sorry. If you're not, you should start doing so now. But if you are, you've heard me prattle on about Venezuela, an issue I care a lot about. So now it's in the news at the moment. So when it's in the news at the moment, I take that opportunity to um, start um, rambling about Venezuela because it seems a little more timely and it seems a little more appropriate. So I noticed something recently, and the internet is a distorting kind of device, isn't it? I mean, what happens on Twitter is not what happens in the real world. So I have been seeing a lot of stuff on Twitter. It was rather complimentary to the Maduro regime in Venezuela um, from what I would say kind of the usual suspects. There are a few people in that crowd who I know well. I know their work well. I don't know them personally. Um, who make a slightly more robust case and they make a slightly more academic case. Um, and one of those guys is a guy named Mark Weisbrot. And he is somebody who has been defending the Bolivarian Revolution in Venezuela for um, a number of years. And as I mentioned in the podcast, uh, to him, uh, if you search Mark's name, you can find a picture of him and Sean Penn and Hugo Chavez chumming it up in probably 2003 or 2004. So Mark is fairly close to this. And um, he is uh, an economist. And he is somebody who has a think tank in Washington, D.C., which is, um, I think, probably a slight understatement to say it's a left of center think tank. It's a very left of center think tank. And so we decided to get him on the podcast and I would talk to him about Venezuela because I wanted to get somebody out there um, who is making that argument, making the argument from the kind of Maduro side of things. This is not an argument you hear a lot, as Mark makes very clear and as I agree with him on. And there's a reason, I think, that you don't hear it very much, because it's a very hard argument to make. So we, I, spoke to Mark for probably about an hour, and um, my preamble here is going to be probably a little more sharp elbow than it normally would be, because Mark, um, I let him talk. And I thought that was fair to do. We did mix it up quite a bit. And so if your kind of eyes are getting heavy and you're saying, oh, this is a bunch of, you know, Venezuelan policy stuff, just wait, dear comrades, because punches are thrown, shots are fired, blood is drawn. And, um, you know, we mix it up a bit. And there's, I just want to be clear about this because I was trying to be fair to Mark and actually have something that was listenable and not people talking over each other for an hour. I let him go on things 
Mark, you're a lovely guy, but I'm going to say it, that are so preposterous that I believe you can hear my intake of breath on these very expensive microphones. You could probably hear my jaw hitting the ground and shattering into a thousand pieces. There's stuff in here that I very, very strongly disagree with. And it's very hard to get people who have a very particular view of American foreign policy in particular um, and governments like Venezuela to admit um, that the current government of Nicolas Maduro is a fetid, nasty dictatorship. Mark objects to the use of that term, as you'll hear. Um, but, you know, that is something that I wanted to discuss, that um, he wanted to be more specific about sanctions. I think next time uh, this comes up, this issue, which will be coming up, I imagine, until the Maduro regime meets its um, ultimate demise, which uh, can't come a day too soon, that we will discuss this again, and I will address some of the issues that Mark brings up that I think are totally wrong. But I wanted to have him on here to have his say and to get a little mix it up, see what the, the Chavistas and the American Chavistas were saying about the current mess in Venezuela. So have a listen. Um, you know, send me messages about how much you hate it and how bored you were. Or send me cash or send me, you send me a lot of things, but uh, most of them are, are lovely and nice. So keep that up. But listen to the special episode of myself, Michael C. Moynihan, and Washington, D.C.-based Chavista, Mark Weisbrot. The fifth column. 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 So, Mark Weisbrot, um, thanks for coming on, and I appreciate uh, having someone who I think is probably on different side of this issue on a number. I think, I think we agree on, on, on some things, and we'll get to that. Uh, sanctions, etc. But let's start... Uh, Mark, with your kind of background in writing about and sort of covering Venezuela. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm an economist, so I focused mostly on uh, to the extent that I've written about Venezuela. I've written mostly about the economy, but I've also written a lot about U.S. foreign policy there, which I think is most important for people who live in the United States because, you know, ultimately we don't really decide we're not Venezuelan here. And so we're not trying to decide what's best for Venezuelans, but we do have a responsibility to keep our government from making a terrible mess there as they have uh, contributed quite a bit and, and all over Latin America in the 21st century, they've intervened. And in, the, and in the 20th century, too, we have kind of a sketchy record yeah. in Latin America. Um, <laughs> it's even worse then, yeah. So if I do a Google search for Mark Weisbrot and I do a Google image search, uh, I do see a picture of you in the first row of you and I believe it's Sean Penn and Hugo Chavez. Uh, tell me about that, that moment. Uh, that was a time when I visited Venezuela. I've been there many times and I was at the presidential palace. And uh, there was nothing particularly special about it, although I was tra traveling with with Sean Penn at the time. He had uh, some things he wanted to ask uh, Chavez about. And, uh, you know, we had some conversations. There was nothing uh, extraordinary about it. But, but did you have a relationship with Hugo Chavez in any particular way? No, uh, you know, I didn't know him that well. I met with him. I've met with a lot of heads of state, especially in the 21st century. You had, um, you know, left governments in Argentina, Brazil, uh, Uruguay, Paraguay, Bolivia, Ecuador. And I met with almost all of those uh, presidents. And I didn't consider 
Venezuela uh, or Chavez to be uh, a pariah at all, like uh, people here do. In fact, in the decade that he was uh, actually in control of the state oil industry, uh, which would be 2003 till he died in 2013. Uh, that was one of the best decades in the history of Venezuela by any uh, economic or social measure that you can pretty much think of, whether it's uh, growth of income per person, a reduction of poverty, access to higher education, access to public pensions, uh, you know, progress in social indicators like infant mortality. Now, you know, that's all fallen apart in the last uh, five or six yeah, years. So, so what, what happened? But during that time, I just want to say that yeah. even though the media, even when everything was going very, very well, uh, the media was reporting it as a, a terrible failure and a dictatorship and all these other things. And it just wasn't true at all. Did you do you understand in some ways why the media narrative developed that way? And to say, you know, it's not wasn't just people in the sort of Fox News, you know, hyperventilating. No, it right. It was, it was it was all over the place. I mean, you wrote a number of pieces over the years for, for The Guardian. And I remember the reporting of Rory Carroll, who is The Guardian's correspondent in Caracas at the time and wrote a book called Comandante about Hugo Chavez uh, being very critical of the Chavez government from probably, you know, I'd say 2002, around the time of the coup, uh, until... I remember that book. Yeah. And, you know, one thing really interesting about that book is you can search that book because I had an online copy of it. And I had a number of discussions with Roy Carroll, actually. And um, there's nothing about poverty in that entire book. And he wrote that at a time when poverty had been reduced. And these are World Bank figures. Like, this isn't, you know... Nobody disputes this. Uh, poverty was reduced by half and extreme poverty by 65 percent. They'd never had that before, even when oil prices were extremely high and rose very fast in the 1970s. And he never mentioned it in that book. And that was just typical of the kind of reporting you had. It was really almost military discipline you had here uh, in terms of Venezuela. And that's not universal. There were a handful of reporters who tried to provide balance, and uh, most of them were fired or transferred. So, I mean, I, before I push back on some of this stuff, and I, and I want to, and I want to sort of challenge some of these, these notions, um, I do want to get your perspective on this, and I, I want to know why you think that was. So, you know, Roy Carroll is, is not an Elliot Abrams type. He's not a sort of apparatchik for empire. You know, I mean, he's an Irish correspondent of a left-wing newspaper in London. Why do you think um, that somebody like that was not reporting on the things that you saw happening or you, or, or you think That's happened. a great question. It's not what I saw, by the way. These are statistics. When I give you stats here, these are not uh, something that's made up by the government or by me. These are, you know, the only stats I'm using, except, of course, for the last year where I'll use estimates, the best estimates that are available because there's no data. I'm using, you know, these are facts that nobody disputes. They just, like I said, he didn't even mention it in, in his book. Now, the question you're asking is a very sophisticated question that you don't get much. Why were these reporters? And there's a book actually by an academic uh, in the UK, uh, Alan McLeod, uh, called, um, I think Scottish, right? Bad news from, yeah, yeah. bad news from Venezuela. Uh, you know, and he just goes through the 20 years of, of this kind of reporting. And, you know, it's a complex question. It's not simple. I mean, you know, this isn't, uh, you know, 
China, where the state controls the media. But you know, foreign policy reporting is vastly different from uh, reporting on the domestic U.S. economy or politics. If, you know, I know because you know I've been I founded this uh, co-founded this think tank 20 years ago, and we work on both issues. And it's it's just a it's a different universe when you work on a foreign policy, anything having to do with foreign policy, and and it breaks down the worst when the United States is really trying to overthrow a, a government. Then you just get really really one-sided reporting. Now, how does that happen? Well, I. I think, you know, having known all these individual reporters, there's different stories and different institutions in each case. In Rory's case, I think, I don't think, uh, it's, it's really hard to say uh, how much he was constrained by The Guardian. The foreign desk of The Guardian is quite conservative, even though the rest of the paper isn't so much. Um, and so... I think, you know, part of it could have been uh, constraints on him. A lot of reporters for the different news agencies and wires were constrained. But a lot of them just really hated that government. And partly the government didn't treat them all that well, like they were used to being treated. They didn't necessarily return their phone calls. Uh, so there was that. But they did that because of the, you know, in, in, in again, to give just both sides of it, uh, they were facing really bad reporting, reporting that just didn't, you know, often didn't even try to get any kind of nuance. You know, uh, there was a period in, for example, where the New York Times, about a year and a half after the 2004 referendum, and I know you don't want to spend all the time talking about the media, but it's it's kind of interesting. You know, their reporter actually did, you know, because he was kind of shocked. Everybody At that time, all the polls were fake. They were all opposition polls, and they all showed that Chavez was going to lose the referendum, and then he won by 60-40. And some of these reporters said, well, what happened here? And they went. They, he went into the barrios. And and he tried to figure out what was going on. Why did these people like him so much? And so uh, and 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 there you had about a year and a half of uh, of of bad uh, of, of reporting that was uh, more balanced. And you, they even got, you know, there are a lot of experts you can go to that actually will give you another side of the story. It doesn't really do any good to just go to the government and and get you know, just their side because they've already demonized the government and it has no credibility. It's like when the media used to put, uh, you know, Saddam Hussein's foreign minister on the air when they wanted a dissenting voice against the run-up to the Iraq war. That, that didn't help. You know, there are plenty of people who could give the other side and they just didn't do it. And they, he did it for a little while and then he left the New York Times. From what I heard, he was pushed out or fired and he went to the Washington Post and he never uh, he never did that kind of reporting again. And, and then he went to the Wall Street Journal, which is very ideological. So, you know, that's that's just one story of, uh, you know, dozens that I could tell you about how it happens. But it isn't again, it's not a conspiracy. It's uh, it's a uh, it's just a very deep prejudice. You know, also, you have to look at Latin America. You know, what I the story I told you for Venezuela is 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 very similar for the other left governments as well. Argentina, Brazil, the Brazilian reporting was just was just terrible. I mean, through that whole a parliamentary coup against Dilma Rousseff, you know, it was it was just awful, awful reporting. And uh, then they changed, you know, when the when the actual uh, 
first impeachment vote happened. Uh, then the, you know, it was a horrible spectacle and the whole world saw the awful nature of the people who were impeaching uh, Dilma. And then they changed uh, for a little while. They got a little, they got more critical of the opposition. But I'm just saying, you know, you could go through all these countries. And I think, you know, the general statement I would make is that the Latin America reporting tends to be the worst of any foreign policy reporting in the United States because there's no dissent within the government or the foreign policy establishment. So if you look at the Middle East, if you look at Afghanistan, Iraq, there's always a, a faction within the State Department, the Pentagon, the National Security Council, the um, you know the, the the intelligence agencies that doesn't agree with what uh, the uh, the policy is. You know they think it's it's it might be counterproductive. You know there was a lot of division over the Iran nuclear deal, for example. You have different factions, and that's reflected in the media. In Latin America, you have a consensus uh, in the whole foreign policy establishment that this is ours, this is our territory, and so they've had a very simple uh, strategy since these governments started getting elected in 1998, which is to get rid of all of them. And they've gotten rid of a few. And they're working on Venezuela right now. And I think that influences the coverage a lot, that there is no dissent in the foreign policy establishment. So let's talk about where we are right now. I mean, this is obviously on the front page of a lot of newspapers. I mean, we hear it on um, NPR every day. I mean, there's a flood of sort of Venezuela coverage. And let's start by just t talking about some of the sort of nomenclature and how we're referring to people here. I mean, Nicolas Maduro, you're saying that there is a particular view that is almost uniform amongst people who cover this stuff in the West or in the English speaking media, I should say. Um, dictator. Uh, is Nicolas Maduro a dictator? You know, that's kind of just a hate word. I don't really see that as having uh, meaning. And no, I wouldn't call him a dictator. I mean, if he's a dictator, then uh, this is a dictatorship like has, has, that has never existed before in modern history. I mean, for 15, 17 years now. Uh, people have been going on national television in in Venezuela and calling for the overthrow of the government, and even at times when they could actually possibly do it, and that doesn't happen really. Well, I mean, look, you're talking. You're so, also talking so, about. So I mean, RCTV was taken off of, the air. Globavision was basically taken off the air. Uh, El Universal, the newspaper, was taken over by a sort of shadowy government-connected uh, shell company. El Nacional is the one that's left. But I mean, the media. I I I do. Question this idea that the media is free in Venezuela. I didn't say it was completely free. I'm just saying that dictatorships. If you, if you, you know, if you've ever visited a dictatorship or, you know, uh, seen one, it's it's not like uh, Venezuela at all. They first of all, they've had elections, and you know. The elections have been uh, clean. Well, uh, well elections and democracy are not the same thing, right? Uh, I mean, you can oh, have you can have elections. We, have, and, we voted, and, you know, twelve. Yeah. The the Democrats won the Senate by twelve million votes, and it's a Republican Senate. So, yeah, I mean, we have a limited form of democracy as well, and we have elections that are unfair, and there's voter suppression and all that. I'm not saying I'm not comparing that to Venezuela because there's obviously these are, you know, Venezuela has always had a weak rule of law. It is, a, you know, it was before Chavez. And and they cleaned it up quite a bit. I mean, they one of their uh, uh, you know one of their accomplishments was to have m much cleaner elections than what you had in the past. Now, I'm not going to defend you know any particular thing. I don't I don't defend any government or any. I've never defended anything wrong that any government in Latin America has done. But you know the the word dictator is 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 nothing more uh, than a hate word like strongman 
or uh, autocrat. These words are not have no political science uh, definition as they are used. I mean, last year you had a government in Venezuela, uh, in, in Honduras that literally stole the election. I mean, stole it right in the middle of the election. They stopped counting the votes. And then when they came back, everything was reversed. And no observer you can talk to, you know, talk to any of the reporters. You can talk to people on any across the political uh, spectrum, people that are are vehemently pro-U.S. and wanted, maybe even wanted that government. And nobody will tell you that the election wasn't stolen. It was fake, fake, completely stolen. And the Organization of American States knew it was stolen and, and, and said things. And then, of course, they backed off because the U.S. didn't want them to say that. OK, so if we don't if we but, don't but, call but it a terrorist, well, let me just finish the sentence. Well, I, okay? I don't care very much about Honduras. To be Nobody honest. calls that. You never see the word dictator for the president of Honduras. You don't even see it for the president of Cuba either, because all the NGOs and the business groups here want to have better relations with Cuba. So dictator is just a word that is used uh, arbitrarily to describe someone that the United States is trying to get rid of. That's uh, why he's uh, called a, a dictator in the media. You couldn't make that argument by comparing to any modern uh, dictatorship. So and we can argue about this all. What the whole would hour, you, no? I know, I know, I, I know. I want to, I want to move slightly beyond this, but but not too far. Just in the sense of, I want to get a sense of how you conceive of the Maduro. Uh, government or regime, depending on 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 where you sit. I mean, it, it, this is a, a country that has a lot of political prisoners, and I don't know if you believe that Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch and the Organization of American States, who just cited, um, are all biased against Venezuela in a sense that they they are talking about political prisoners that don't exist. But there are political prisoners in Venezuela, correct? Yeah, there are some, although I think most of them are not opposition. I mean, there, there aren't any prominent or known, you know, prominent opposition figures that are in that are in jail. They, they, the human Rights Watch and Amnesty say there, there are hundreds of them, including Leopoldo Lopez, who is under house arrest. No, he's under house arrest. He's not in jail. And he's the only one. Wait, wait, that wait, wait, wait. Hold on. I mean, you're saying that he, he, he can't leave his house. He's not a prisoner. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I'm just telling you, they let them out. OK, I mean. But should, you, it, should they have been in there in the first place? Well, I mean, no, I think as a, you know, in terms well, you know, you have to so, go case So Leopoldo case. Lopez shouldn't have been arrested. In, well, no, I couldn't say he shouldn't have been arrested. I mean, he did violate a lot of laws and he did try to overthrow the government and he would have been arrested in any uh, democracy that I know of. Now, whether he got a fair trial is an, another story. And this is why I, I say that one of the prosecutors fled and said he, he wasn't. He said they made up evidence. The prosecutor said that. And if Leopoldo yeah, Lopez, by yeah, the way, yeah. if, if he Again, was accused of his, if he was accused yeah. of trying to overthrow the government in 2002, which is one of the yeah. charges, yeah. then why not arrest him and try him in 2003 with yeah. an actual court process? Well, that will, that's that, why I say the rule yeah. of law is very weak. They've never had a functioning judiciary, even before uh, Chavez. It's very, very weak. So why why is it that Chavez and, and Maduro can't actually follow the rule of law in a way that would please people like Amnesty International, who I don't think are a bunch of right wing golpistas? I don't think they're people that are trying to. You're not going to make me defend anything they did that's wrong. OK, I'm just telling you that this has nothing to do. But you did just tell me that there were no political prisoners in Venezuela that were I of the opposition. I didn't say that. No, I said that. Okay, clarify that for I me. I can't now. think of any known, you know, well-known 
there might be people, obviously there are people that are arrested in protests and demonstrations and they sit there in jail because you don't have a, a judiciary that brings them before a judge and, and you know, gives them a preliminary hearing and does the kind of things that you would have in the United States and they get out, okay? So you could call them uh, political prisoners of a sort. Although, again, I think... Uh, you know, I, I know a bunch of Chavistas that are in jail right now. So well, I, that I would be wrong too. It is, I'm and that would be, and that, that would suggest look, to me look, look that the government that is you so try and paint of a government that rules by force. You know, <laughs> and that that's you know, look at the comparison. Look at Colombia, where you yeah again this is this is of, I, of course more likely to be murdered if you're a human rights. Let's do another episode about Colombia, but let's stick on Venezuela here. Yeah, is yeah, it why? I'm why just, I just don't understand why. I mean, th- that would suggest to me if there were Chavistas that were in jail for dissenting opinions too. Yeah. that this is a government that is so bent on quelling dissenting voices, they're putting their own people in jail too. I mean, so I it's not a great are, argument no, that they're too, they're, they're, they're no. actually jailing everybody. <laughs> I think that, no, I don't think that's true at all. And it, it isn't, I, I don't, I, ha, I don't have an inventory of the, all the people that are in jail that claim to be political prisoners. I'm pretty sure from what I read that most of them were people that were arrested in clashes and usually violent clashes with the security forces. And, uh, you know, you'd have to look carefully. You don't get, you know, there isn't good uh, data on it. But I, again, I, I'm not defending anything that they do. I think that, uh, you know, the, the picture, though, that this is uh, a dictatorship that rules by force is is quite uh, is quite exaggerated. I mean, so to your point, they have responded to. Yeah, I mean, I, I just want to quote you know, something to you, and I want to really get, I want to get your, I, I want to get your. I mean, you, 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 you know, what do you think the United States would look like right now it's, if it, if we were on the verge of a coup that was supported by a government, you know, uh, thirty times our size? I would certainly hope they wouldn't be shooting protesters in the street. You, you would be dead. Okay, I, I would so, really hope not. <laughs> I would hope that they so, wouldn't be shooting so, places. I mean, I'm not defending. Don't put me in a place where I have to defend. I'm just, I'm just saying that Mark, I'm just this asking is what your happens in a country where they're under siege. And yeah, it's, you know, some of it is not, uh, most of it, whatever. Uh, a lot of it's not justifiable. I, I've, you know, they don't have, uh, they've never had uh, a functioning judiciary and rule of law is weak. But if you're going to try and say that it's like, you know, it's presented in the media like it's, you know, North Korea or something or even Russia or China. It's, you know, it's nothing like or even Colombia or Honduras, where you really do get killed uh, very easily. Journalists, I mean, 100 journalists have been murdered in Mexico, according to The New York Times, in circumstances where the government is implicated. You don't have one case of that in 20 years in Venezuela. You can look at Amnesty and you can look at HRW. You won't find any journalists murdered by the government. Okay. okay so, so it's not that kind of a, of a place. Here's and I just thing. want to make that clear. Yes. Okay. So Mark, the reason you're here, right? And the reason I wanted to talk to you was to get this perspective, because when I read these things and then I, you know, look at your Twitter feed and see people from your organization, your think tank and getting a very different view. So I do want you to respond to these things. And, you know, so for, for, for instance, I mean, I'm going to give you, this is from, from Amnesty. And again, I do, I do not believe that Amnesty is a political organization that is trying to overthrow Latin American governments. And this is from uh, the end of 2018. And they produced a report that said there were 8,292 extrajudicial executions 
carried out between 2015 and 2017 by security officials. Okay, yeah, that's police violence. That's not uh, political violence. So that's the same thing. You have many more than that, actually, in Brazil and in, you know, throughout Latin America. It's a horrible thing, but police uh, kill people. And it, it, we have that in the U.S., too. It's pretty bad. I don't remember the exact number of the U.S., how many people are yeah, killed. Yeah, and I wanted to make clear here, just so, you know, is the Amnesty's report, and this is what they said, they said state officials adopting military methods use force in an abusive and excessive manner, in some uh, cases intentionally killing during security operations. So um, that that is the, the context of that. Yeah, but, but, you know, Venezuela is not anywhere near as bad as Brazil or Mexico but it's or bad. Colombia. And that. It's bad like every other country that I know of in Latin America, but it doesn't stand out and it's not something uh, but that Venezuela, you Venezuela is the most violent political. country well, in Latin America, Let me America, just finish it? that sentence. It's, it's not something that you can contribute to political repression. It's the weakness of the rule of law. And we have, a, we have a problem like that in the United States, too. Obviously, this is a rich country and with developed institutions. That's why I'm only making these comparisons, because, uh, you know, Venezuela is pre- presented as this, you know, like it's Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge. And it's really, it you know, it, it's not as bad as as many of its neighbors. In but Mark, this you, say we have, we say, you say we have that similar problem in the United States. If those numbers from Amnesty are accurate, the United States yeah. has 10 times the population of Venezuela. And if I told you that there were 8,000 police and military executions in America. Over how many years? Well, that, uh, two, uh, 2015 to 17. So, and if I said that eight times, 8,000, then times that by 10, if I said 80,000 executions in America from police and military, I think that would probably cause a revolution here. Yeah, I think it would, and and justly so. But again, if you look at the numbers from Brazil, they're much bigger than that. And uh, in you know, I don't have the numbers. I mean, I've looked at Brazil a number of times. So that's a big issue in Brazil, and they do it just you know with total impunity. I remember on, on TV they had a helicopter just uh, gunned down this uh, suspect who was unarmed and running, and they just shot him right in front of everyone. Nobody even cared enough to, you know, uh, try and push for prosecution. Yeah, and unfortunately and the Brazilians so, elected a so, very reactionary person. Yeah, but this was days. even before that. And yeah, no, yeah. so this is a problem throughout Latin America, and I don't know why you know, I, I, I don't know why it's it's that relevant to what, you know, the U.S. is doing in, in Venezuela. Well, it's not, it's not, I'm trying to get a sense of, you know, what it is like for people in, in, in Venezuela now, because we started this conversation about the media picture. And, you know, a headline like that will be fairly prominent. Yeah, and, I, and, I and I understand why. Violence. You know, the media never even reported all the Chavistas that were killed in the countryside uh, because they were struggling for land reform. So, you know, they don't – I mean, that that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about – and I, I don't know how much you want to talk about this, but I, all I – you know, all we started out with was the idea that the, the media does present a distorted picture of, of Venezuela. Yeah, you know, but it's important and, to me as somebody who covers Venezuela, as you do, has written about it and been to Venezuela, has met Hugo Chavez, is to get a sense of these are the main – ideas that are out there, right? So one one of them is violence. I mean, the the, the media has barely touched on the human rights problem of police killings. That's not what they write about at all. They write about politics and they write about uh, the economy, and they 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 don't really. That, that's that's barely a blip in the media reporting. Okay, so let's let's move on to um, a sort of what's going on right now. 
Um, you've written quite, let's talk about, actually, you want to discuss, just discuss something. I want to kind of cede this to you, to Francisco Rodriguez, who's a, uh, opposition economist. Um, I wouldn't say he's opposition, but he's somebody who's not a fan of the, the Maduro regime, wrote something in the FT. No, he's opposition. Let's correct that. Okay. Because it's very important because, um, he, he ran an opposition campaign in the last election, and you can read what the candidate said in the New York Times and what he said during the campaign. And he campaigned quite uh, – he said very, very mean things sure. uh, about the government. And, and to be clear, I just very, wanted to make sure that, that yeah. I, what I meant by that was that he was not writing this from you know the staff of Enrique Capriles or something. He was writing this to the FT in his own personal capacity, but I appreciate you clarifying. But talk about that piece and – in what it was that that kind of intrigued you about it and um, in what you wanted to discuss about it. Yeah. Well, this is very important because, you know, the United States is currently trying to overthrow the Venezuelan uh, government, and they're doing it very openly, unlike in the, in the past where they did it more quietly. And the... Uh, and they're doing it through uh, two means. One, they're, you know, threatening uh, a military... Uh, action and trying to get the military to defect and topple the government through a coup just by the force of these threats. And they expected that in January, and it, it didn't happen. And the other thing they're doing, though, is actually much worse because they're actually killing people every day, and they've been doing this for several years now. And they're killing them through these sanctions. So the sanctions are actually a form of war. And this was true in Iraq in the 1990s, where you know, an estimated, uh, you know, 400,000 people uh, died in the 90s as a result of uh, children actually died as a result of the sanctions. So these sanctions are, are very serious. And again, this is where the media has, you know, dropped the ball. They almost never even report the impact of the sanctions. I, I so mean, so really these sanctions, never. which, uh, you know, up until um, the most recent round of um, sanctions against PDVSA and actually the ability of, of uh, Venezuela to uh, export oil to the United States. And um, just to be clear, I mean, I uh, oppose this and I think it's a very, very bad policy that will fall um, disproportionately and, and horrendously on the Venezuelan people. But prior to, prior to these sanctions, what is your objection to the targeted sanctions against members of the regime that were not supposed to affect the people of Venezuela in the bottom line of the Venezuelan state coffers. Okay. See, now this is a good example of where, you know, you're relying on really bad reporting uh, for that question because first in August of 2017, there was an executive order from Trump that placed a financial embargo on the country. Uh, and that was absolutely devastating to uh, the economy in, in several ways. So it wasn't a targeted sanction. It wasn't targeted against individuals. It was targeted against the whole uh, economy. And there are several reasons for that. One is that this is a country that, the, that relies on oil exports for over 90% of the dollars, the foreign exchange, that they use to import uh, everything uh, that you know, vital necessities in terms of vital necessities. So food, medicine, medical equipment, spare parts. Uh, so that embargo 
really had an enormous impact. First, it had a huge impact on oil production itself. So what specifically uh, were those sanctions in 2017 that, okay, that you say Okay, so what those sanctions did, they, pre, they prohibited uh, Venezuela from using the U.S. and much of the international uh, financial system to, to borrow. And so there were a so it was number— a tra- it was the trading of Venezuelan bonds. Well, no, it was much more than that. I mean, they, for example, Venezuela at that time was trying to negotiate a debt restructuring, which is something that they need after a deep recession and a balance of payments uh, crisis. And it's something that you could actually get when you're a country like Venezuela and you have 300 billion uh, barrels of uh, of oil and you have gold and you have other resources, You you know, you would really never go bankrupt. Uh, outside of some kind of sanctions like this, because you could always, you could, you know, you could back up these, uh, any new bonds with, with resources. And so what they, what these sanctions did was made it impossible for them to restructure their debt, uh, because they can't borrow to restructure your debt. You have to issue new bonds to replace the old ones, and they, they they couldn't do that. And then it also really hurt oil production, and you can see this just looking at a graph of oil production. It was already declining uh, up to, you know, August uh, 2017, and then it's right after August 2017, it just plummets, and it falls at three times the rate that it had fallen previously, and 700,000 barrels a day. Uh, were lost. So if you just even, you know, calculate the difference between the rate of decline before and after those sanctions, it comes out to uh, about $6 billion worth of oil. Now, to put that in perspective, when the economy was booming, uh, you know, Venezuela imported $2 billion worth of of medicine. And total goods imports in 2018 were about $11.7 billion. So I just want want to clarify something quickly from you. And just to be clear, and you're talking about the 2017 um, sanctions. That did yeah. not. That didn't affect exports of oil, correct? Yeah, it did. They lost two. They lost seven hundred thousand uh, barrels of oil daily uh, after the sanctions. And again, I'm giving a conservative estimate of the impact of the sanctions. I'm just saying, look at the difference between how fast oil production was falling after the sanctions versus before. And so it made an enormous impact right there. And and of course, there's so many more impacts that you don't even see. But if you talk to people, as I have, at the major financial institutions, you can talk to Francisco Rodriguez. He used to work at Bank of America, and he will tell you the same thing. Even the Obama sanctions in 2015, which were supposedly just on individuals, that already, uh, that all the, the compliance uh, departments of these major financial institutions were already cutting off credit after that. But they were also, but I, they were also cutting, let, let's be clear about this, they were also cutting off credit because Venezuelans and the Venezuelan government had a very hard time paying back its bills, right? Well, not at that time. And again, uh, you know, no, at that time they, they didn't. And, and, and again, they, they, could do a, uh, they could have done a debt restructuring and this cut off any means of the economy recovering. And it also meant that there was going to be continued hyperinflation as well. And hyperinflation is a self-perpetuating process, as you may know. Once people lose faith in the currency, it just continues until you can actually 
uh, take measures to to fix that. And that would involve in, you know, in most cases so, in Latin America. Yeah. So I want to ask you as an economist is that, yeah. you know, I mean, you um, seem to lay all the blame or most of the blame. And I, I don't want to put words in your mouth of the collapse of the Venezuelan economy on American sanctions. Well, I wouldn't say, uh, you know, I'm not blaming, you know, everything on them. I'm just saying that if you look at what has happened, you know, in the past uh, couple of years, at least, yeah, the sanctions were overwhelming and they prevented and still prevent any kind of economic recovery. And that's really important, not because, you know, we're having debate over who has more blame, but because this is what the American people need to understand, because their government is engaging in real crimes. I mean, there are people from the UN called it crimes against humanity. They're starving people and depriving them of medicine. I know people who have died from lack of medicine uh, in Venezuela because of this. And they cannot get out of this. Because, because and that's of what, the actual because of what strategy. I, okay, I want to emphasize this, but, that. But, that but, is the strategy of he, the Trump administration to starve and and kill people until they overthrow the government. I'm sorry if that's too blunt. Uh, no, I, I just I, looking I, at that objectively many, would say many, that that's a strategy. Yeah, many Venezuelans that I know would say that they were starving prior to any of the uh, actions of they the were, Trump they administration. Were, they had food shortages. Yeah, they were losing weight. But again, that's fixable. And some of it, you know, the government is now feeding, according to an independent survey of anti-government academics uh, that was just reported in, in uh, Foreign Affairs uh, a, a couple of a few days ago. You know, the government's feeding 90 percent of the population now. And let me respond to that quickly. Because I, that, that survey um, I saw on your Twitter feed. And yeah. I looked it up and I read that survey. And that survey also said that almost 95% or 90% of Venezuelans are living in poverty now, as opposed yeah, to that's 20. Actually 20, not defensible. That that's a, that's a bullshit statistic. So wait, so I, you're, so it seems to be that you're taking the statistics from no, no, this no, that you no, like no, no, and the I'm ones that you don't I like mean, you're dismissing I, because the other look, thing about that, you're talking about the clap boxes and to people who don't know this, these are the boxes that are delivered by the government of food to the people yeah. of Venezuela. You're saying that it's gone up. That's not a good thing, by the way, that more no, people no, are getting I'm clap not, boxes. Hey, 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 it also says in that it also hold on let me let me let me respond here okay that it also says in that very study that these clap boxes are very sporadic when they come number one and number two they're used as a form of political control and if you are opposed to the government known to oppose the government knows known to go out in the streets and protest the government those clap boxes are not going to be there for you do you disagree you disagree with that i I don't know i don't have any evidence on that but i I just want to say you're taking their word on other points but wait, 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 wait. I'm not picking and choosing my data, okay? I'm taking that data because it's believable on the, the government's distributing food to 90% of households. It's a so survey. why is the other stuff not I have believable? no reason to believe that it's wrong. The poverty data is a, is another story because they don't really have any way. They're, they're not really measuring that. And if you, it's just not possible, you know. <laughs> I mean, by some definition, they could they could say that, but God knows what it is because- you know, if you go there, you can see that there are, you know, there there are a huge part of the population is getting remittances. There's three million Venezuelans abroad. If you have dollars, you know, you're not poor, okay? And so it's it, it's high. 
I, I believe that the poverty rate has shot up. Okay, but no, ninety percent—that's just—that's that's just not believable, you know. And and I, I have no idea where they get that number from. But uh, let me just say, I wasn't saying what you uh, kind of uh, you know accused me of saying about the government distributing food—that that's a great thing or whatever. That point I made because people who say that they're not targeting the government when they cut off foreign exchange from they're not targeting the people that's another way in which they target the people if you're if the government is distributing food however sporadically or whatever to 90% of the population and you cut off 60% of their uh their dollar revenue then you're cutting off food to uh to most of the people in the in, in the country and that's what the Trump administration is quite deliberately doing. So how is it that, I mean, I want to get a sense of how this all happened, though, because, I mean, if you say that in 2017, the sanctions started to bite and, you know, started to have a, have a very negative effect, you know, in 2016, the inflation rate in Venezuela was almost 300 percent, 250 percent. I mean, this has been right. an inflationary spiral for a long time. And I yeah. see these people that go on to Twitter and these Americans that show up in, in Venezuela and they film a, a supermarket in Altamira where things exist, but people can't buy them because they yeah, don't have access to me. dollars. Okay. No, I know that's not you. you. I'm just, I'm just, I, no, 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 no. I'm not accusing you of that at all. And if I did, I would yeah. be very specific that you posted this stuff. You most certainly did not. But this, I just don't hear you as an economist saying that the policies of the Maduro administration, and I don't even, we'll, we'll forget about Chavez. The policies of the Maduro administration have not only contributed, but I would say created a lot of this. Why this import, the importing of food? Why is Venezuela importing? What, what percent are they importing of their food now? It's an enormously high percent, over 50%. Well, the economy's collapsed. They but, lost yeah, but half why, of their GDP. Like, is, is the nationalization of every, every industry, major industries from the cement industry to taking over hectares of land, et cetera, does that not contribute at all? I mean, there were shortages in 2007 that the Washington Post, I think it was Juan Ferrer was reporting on. Yeah, that I saw that. Mil milk you couldn't get at the time and, and certain rice you couldn't get at the time. This is 2007. Where is this coming from in one, which used to be the richest country in Latin America. It's a country that has more proven, uh, bigger proven oil reserves than Saudi Arabia. How is this happening? I cannot imagine, and you know it's not true, that it is just the Obama administration and, and the Trump administration that is creating this problem. Well, it is. Right now, they kind of own it because they're really destroying the economy at a much more accelerated uh, pace. But I have written about the Venezuelan economy uh, for about a decade. And so you can look at anything I've written about. And I, uh, I you know, pointed out the problems with their exchange rate system quite early. You know, at first it wasn't so much of a problem because it was just an overvalued exchange rate. It was more of a development problem in the sense that, you know, imports were artificially cheap and it made any kind of exports if they wanted to diversify away from oil uh, more uh, expensive. And But then, uh, you know, it did get worse and... Uh, 
you know, you had, and then you had oil prices collapse uh, in 2014, and so yeah, I, you know, I was part of a team of of, of economists uh, from the Union of South American Nations, and Francisco Rodriguez was part of that team as well, and we went there in 2016, and we proposed, uh, you know, a whole series of reforms that we thought uh, would help. So I, I've never, you know, tried to defend any uh, economic policies. But I, I, the reason I'm not focusing on this right now is because we have a rare opportunity to discuss something that the media, all the media is ignoring uh, right now, which is that the United States government is deliberately uh, strangling an economy, starving people, depriving them of medicine. And nobody even knows it. I mean, I've been on the Hill recently and most people in congress and staff there's a good handful of people who understand this and they're pushing back on it you know we can talk about that as well but most of them don't even know that uh when they recognize uh, juan guaido you know as the speaker of the house uh, nancy pelosi has that they're actually putting a trade embargo on on venezuela did you know that i mean th that's what they're doing and, and it's what they, they've done, because when you recognize this parallel government, what you're doing is you're saying that the – and you're enforcing that the oil that the government sells, which is the source of all the dollars for the economy, not just the public sector but the private sector as well – uh, and the the means by which they import any uh, essential and life-saving uh, medicines, you're saying that you're cutting off about, th you know, three-quarters of that. Actually, Torino Capital estimated, you know, 60 percent, but whatever it is, you're cutting off most of the uh, dollars that that economy can have because you're saying that the oil that Venezuela exports to the United States and most of its markets will uh, no longer generate any revenue for Venezuela. It only goes to Juan Guaido, who can't even use it for anything. It's not even clear how they can get it to him. And that is a, a trade embargo. And I, yeah, a trade I mean, embargo it's, it's... at a time when the economy is already devastated. That's, again, you know, Torino Capital estimated that's going to knock out 60% of their remaining yeah. uh, oil revenue. And you're going to see, I mean, Rodriguez says there's going to be actual famine pretty soon. So that's what the Congress is, a, a number of members of Congress who don't particularly like Trump are going along with. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say that some of them don't even have any idea what they're they're doing and why would they because uh, nobody in the media is even re reporting it yeah I, I well look i think that that i, I would disagree with you slightly there just slightly that i think it is being reported that one well, yeah, yeah. I, 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 it's, right. it's, it's in different language it's, 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 it's in different language than, yeah. than, than you're saying is using using the phrase it, embargo but it is reporting that pdvs's accounts are in certain even the russians and, and, and Gazprom, I believe, are um, following the American lead, fearful of their own sanctions. And I, I fearful of violating American sanctions. And I disagree with this stuff. I think it's a very, very, very bad policy. Well, that's not a small point. It's not, I mean, it's not, not a small point. It's something else, but that is, that is the main point. I mean, what they're doing is a major crime. 
It's against all, inter, you know, it's against the charter of the Organization of American States. It's against the UN Charter. It's against the, you know, various conventions, uh, Geneva Conventions uh, on collective punishment. And it's against U.S. law as well, because U.S. law says that in order to impose these sanctions, the president has to declare, as he has done repeatedly, uh, that the Venezuela uh, is a national—well, is, is, first of all, that Venezuela is creating a national emergency for us. It's the exact same law that we just had this big fight over, you know, the fight that we've had over the wall— because Trump declared a national emergency in order to take executive use executive power to grab funds and build the wall he has to by the very same law and it's listed in the executive orders he has repeatedly declared and Obama did it also in 2015 a national emergency and then he has to say that the Venezuela poses an unusual and extraordinary threat to the national security of the United States. All of these are lies. So just as public citizen and all these state governments have now sued the uh, Trump administration for uh, doing exactly that with regard to the uh, wall, and they could sue, anybody could sue the government uh, for uh, this as well. Now, they might not win because yeah. we don't have real rule of law when it comes it, to it, it, Yeah, it's, and, and, and I agree on that, too. And it's an unfortunate thing. And the Obama administration, when, when they... But levied, nonetheless, it should be a topic when, for when, discussion. Should, I mean, why when, do I have to say this on a podcast? When, when, this should be on the front page of the New York uh, it's Times. A, it's a pretty fucking good podcast, I have to say. And, you know, we're uh, rising in the rankings every day, Mark. Um, <laughs> I will say that it is, it is unfortunate. It's something that, that um, should be, I think, more robustly Debated. And it was something in the in the sanctions that the Obama administration um, um, set out in 2015. They also used um, the idea of a national emergency. Um, you know what? There are. I'm going to put one more thing to you um, on this issue because I know you're very passionate about it. Um, and it's probably going to be someone that you, I assume you very much don't uh, agree with or don't like is um, Steve Hankey from Johns Hopkins. Um, and <laughs> yeah. I heard the chuckle already who um, I, I, disagrees with uh, the sanctions himself, by the way, um, and, yeah. and, and the Trump administration's uh, policies here. Um, he says that that, you know, look, what can happen here is that you have the PDVSA, the state run oil company was at already at sort of 1945 levels of output uh, before any of these sanctions hit because PDVSA had been, been denuded of all of its actual professionals after the strike in 2003, 2004. And it was run by political apparatchiks who didn't know what the hell they were doing. They were exporting all of their oil to be refined in the U.S. This was a, a company that was not run well and it should have been run a lot better. And at this point was already declining in such a, such a way that uh, it was inevitable that when 90% of your economy or whatever the actual number is, is reliant upon oil exports, was going to collapse either way. And on top of this, that, that he said that he didn't, I, I disagree with this, he said that he didn't think that these sanctions would be that damaging, but they'll, they'll find a way to sell their oil elsewhere to China, etc. What do you make of people who say that you maybe are hyperventilating a little bit about the, the actual effects of what these recent sanctions will do. Well, I gave you the numbers. I mean, that's kind of an exaggeration. I mean, you can look at the graph, you know, I wish I could, you know, put it on the screen here, but you can look at the graph of oil production uh, from, you know, 2000, whatever year you want to take to 
2000, start 2012. Um, and, um, you know, let me just look it up for you so I can give you the actual numbers just to take just a second. But, you know, I already gave you some of them. I mean, the, um, you know, the, the fall in oil production post sanctions was 700,000 barrels a day out of something like, you know, at that time, something just a little over uh, 2 million. So that's uh, about a third of their oil production that they just lost after the uh, the August 2017 sanctions. And as I said before, it was three times the rate that it was befalling before that. So I'm not going to deny that there were problems at, at PDVSA. I mean, part of it was the oil strike, you know, in 2003. They never completely recovered from that for both technical reasons. You know, uh, a lot of the heavy crew that they have, they can't, uh, when it sits uh, for too long, um, it, it just becomes un, uh, it's not, it's very, very hard to extract after that. Part of it, it was, they did lose, uh, obviously some management. There was nothing that Chavez could do about that though. I mean, these people were striking to overthrow the government. They weren't striking for pay. He gave them everything they asked for. They were striking. It was the management of the oil company. They were striking to overthrow the government. And this was not my opinion. This is what they were saying. And here you can look at, okay, I have the, the graph up. So if you look at, you know, February 2013 to February 2016, for those three years, oil production was constant. And then oil prices collapsed. And this graph shows the decline in oil production in Venezuela right next to the decline in production in Colombia at the same time because, you know, oil prices crashing, uh, you know, uh, below $30 affected both uh, countries. And they declined at the same rate. And then August 2017 hits, and then it just really plummets. Again, I'm not going to say there weren't problems. There were a lot of problems in, in, in Pedavesa. But to say that everything was predetermined uh, is just a gross exaggeration. I mean, we, we, you, you would you would agree? I think that that th things were not going in the right direction at Pedvesa. And I just push back on one thing about the strike in 2000, 2003, is that you know you say it was a management strike only um, and designed to overthrow the government. They it's very clear that they were um, you know bent on getting the Chavez out of office. But, you know, the government fired 18,000 people. There are yeah, not 18,000 managers I mean, I at was there and right? at that time. And I can tell you it was 1% or 2% of the population that was – it wasn't even 1. I mean, it wasn't even 2, you know, that was on strike. It was the management of that company. They fired And it was crippling mine. the economy. They, they, they fired 18,000 people. Yeah. Chavez well, did afterwards. But what could he do? These people really, you know, Pedavesa was well, a you state. Can, with, you're, can, can you're, I explain you're, some you're, history you're, here? You're, you're you a lefty guy. You're, you're, you know, you're a lefty guy. I mean, this is if, if people are striking, you negotiate with them, right? He did. He gave them everything they wanted. That's why I said there was nothing. I, I, look, I, he would never have done that if he had a choice. He let it go. F you know, nobody in, in any country that's completely dependent on oil would have let the, that happen. It went down to like almost no production per day. And the economy was devastated. Mm -hmm. And they were still saying, no, we, you know, Chavez has to go. And they had just done a military coup about eight months earlier than that. So they weren't playing. And he he tried... 
I, I'm not, def- you know, this isn't some reflexes defending of him. I'm just saying that, any, you know, he, he could have been the worst dictator in the world and he still would have had to do that. There was just no way. He tried every other possible thing to do before he fired those people. But, you know, when you have no oil and no foreign exchange and your economy is collapsing, you know, I, there there wasn't really any alternative. And I don't know anybody who knows that situation who would tell you that there was. Well, I suppose it's probably incumbent upon a government like Venezuela over the last sort of 50 years to maybe try to develop an economy that's not entirely uh, well, that's dependent upon oil. Yeah. People so let, let, but I know we're, we're almost out of time here. So I want to I just get to a, a sort of final uh, point here. And we've discussed, um, you know, sanctions. And I'm glad you got an opportunity to put that put that opinion out there, um, which uh, you say is under underreported. And if you actually want to see more of uh, Mark's stuff on this, you can go to his uh, Twitter feed and you'll find a link to the think tank that he runs too. There's a lot of material on this. Um, but it, as far as, tell me what you hope happens in Venezuela, you know, accepting the sanctions. Let's, let's, not, let's, let's talk about a political solution here. I mean, you have an opposition that is, you know, in, in disarray as always, but, you know, Maduro's numbers, you know, if you look at a lot of these polls, independent polls and, you know, people that you've cited too, pollsters that you've cited, data analysis, et cetera, et cetera, they're not very high. I mean, he's not, you know, over 50 percent here. He's something like 20 percent. And this is not a, a, a great situation for the government in Venezuela at the moment. What happens? And in, in, in I, I, I want to know, okay, do you I'm glad support, you asked that because do you support this current government the- and, what, and, what, and, and, and what they're trying to do? That's the most. That's the second most important question I think you've asked, and it's. it's I'm sorry that it comes at the end of a. Oh, it's punctuated. That, that 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 doesn't have a transcript because, this is the most important thing for people in this country to know, that besides the crime, you know, the the horrible crime of actually starving and depriving people of medicine, in order to overthrow a government as they're doing, the second worst thing they're doing is preventing what needs to happen, which is a negotiated solution. And the way that the Trump administration is doing that is that they have selected one faction of the opposition, which is the most hardline faction. They have 14 seats out of 167 seats in the National Assembly. And that is the party of Leopoldo Lopez and Juan Guaido. And they don't want uh, to negotiate at all. And they've said this. And the Pope has offered to mediate, and he is neutral. Mexico and Uruguay are both neutral, and they have offered to mediate. And and this uh, is called the Monte, Montevideo mechanism. And so they want uh, to and, – and it's – this is uh, – this is what has to happen. Anything else, without a negotiated solution, you will have violence and a civil war. And that is the direction, not necessarily a civil war. I mean, it could be just, you know, who knows what kind of violence, but it's going to be violent because you have, uh, you know, millions of people who uh, still uh, support the government. And they also have a well-founded fear of persecution. You know, the hardline Venezuelan opposition are not peaceful people. They had a coup. Lopez was part of it in uh, 2002. And the first thing that happened was they rounded up uh, government officials of the constitutional elected government and threw them in jail. And they also, a lot of people were killed. And uh, so... 
they are. Uh, so you you really have to negotiate. Is, is the current is the current government violent at all? Yeah, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm I'm talking. You about don't think something. that's relevant? You said you uh, said popular will. Uh, 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 the party of Juan Guaido and Leopoldo Lopez, uh, you know, is is participated in violence. Is the current government done the same? Well. I mean, you have the Amnesty and the Human Rights Watch reports. Yeah, yeah. people have been uh, killed, but uh, in in clashes with the government. But you don't have, uh, you know, you don't have a Chilean style dictatorship or something where you round up all the leaders of the of the vanquished uh, party and and kill them. Okay, people have a legitimate. But lots uh, of people are being killed in Venezuela. In well, I mean, they're killed on both sides, you know. I mean, what you want to look in, at the in, history in, of the in, last in, five years? In equal amounts? You know, it, what's that? In equal amounts? Uh, it depends what year you look at. I mean, in 2013, when they were trying to reject the results of the presidential election, the majority of casualties were on the on the government side. Uh, more recently, they've been more on the opposition side. But uh, Does that worry you at all? Yeah, but why don't you let me finish what I was saying? Why don't I? I've, I've let you. Yeah. I've let you I mean, talk uh, for okay. about an hour straight, okay. Mark. I haven't yeah, interrupted you in literally four hundred really things important. that I think okay. you're wrong about. I've let you go. Yeah, I mean, there will be violence on both sides if there's not a negotiated solution because it's a polarized country, and so there, what the what the administration, what the Trump administration is doing, and these are people who have a, you know, these are very violence prone people, Bolton, Rubio, uh, Abrams, who's a war criminal, uh, and Trump himself, you know, they they don't want a negotiated solution, and the way they're preventing it is by taking this hardline faction of the opposition, putting them in the presidency, as they call it, and making sure that no uh, negotiations take place, even though, again, there's been these international offers of mediation, and even the government has said they would like to negotiate. So that's the real problem, and that's, I think, the thing that people have to understand. You're not going to have a winner-take-all solution there. You know, in the in 1990, when the Sandinistas and their armed opposition that was supported by the U.S. Uh, government uh, decided to settle their differences through an election, you had to have negotiations. And in that case, you know, for example, uh, the Sandinistas lost the election, but they retained control over the military for five more years so that uh, the peace would be maintained. Now, I'm not saying that that would be the solution, but you would have to have some so kind of solution. And the reason the Trump administration doesn't want this is because they just want power. They could let this economy uh, fall, for example. You know, let the economy decline and, 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 and bet that the government is going to fall. They don't want that because they want – or they could allow – they don't want a negotiated solution. That's a compromise would come up. There are – there's going on right now. There's, there's negotiations between opposition leaders uh, you know, behind the scenes and the government. And that's what they want to cut off because they want – 
to be in complete control. Bolton and Trump have both talked about taking the oil, you know, and uh, that's part of it as well. So that's what we're really looking at. And you would never get this idea from the media at all. You know, you would never see this part of it. And that's the most important thing I think I can leave you with. What, what would you say? And I'll, I'll make this the last question for you. And I just, you know, want you as a, as a you know, somebody who's you know, on a different side of this than I think a, a lot of people, most certainly in the administration, a lot of people on the Hill, as you yourself pointed out. What would you suggest that the Maduro government concede? What would you say that they would bring to the table and say, hey, you guys don't want to negotiate, but I'm going to give you something that will show that you guys don't want to negotiate that would be a very, very good faith gesture for you? What would you recommend to them? What would be the starting point there? Well, they did do that in the last negotiations. They let out a whole bunch of uh, prisoners, you know, for the UN uh, requested it. In June, and yeah. In, uh, that was in uh, 2017, I believe. And they almost reached a, an agreement. In fact, they did reach an agreement in 2017 for the May 20th elections, presidential elections. Most of the opposition agreed and the government signed the paper. And then all of a sudden, the opposition uh, pulled out at the last minute. And if you talk to people in Congress for who were involved in that, uh, they said, and, and and also the former prime minister of Spain, Zapatero, they said it was just, you know, uh, it was the Republicans. It was Rubio. You know, they didn't want a, an election. And they actually went ahead and, and threatened uh, Henry Falcone when he ran. Uh, he, part- he decided to participate in the election in, in May of, uh, of last year. And uh, the U.S. Embassy threatened him with personal financial sanctions for uh, participating. So, uh, again, uh, what would I, you know, I, I don't know. I'm I, I'm not trying to make decisions for the Venezuelan government. No, I just I think say, you know, as somebody who cares about this make. issue, what would you do? It's not I mean, I know that you don't make decisions. I mean, my I think that you're you're right of what they've done in the past, 2017, 2018, of uh, releasing political prisoners. Um, I don't think there should be political prisoners to begin with. But, you know, if that's if that's a, a point of negotiation, that would be great. I mean, I, it does not, by the way, look very good for the Maduro government globally and on the international stage. And it makes people like you are making a sort of a counter argument. It makes it very difficult for you when people like Jorge Ramos are detained and robbed at Miraflores. And they do not have their equipment back, which is $150,000 worth of camera gear. I shoot stuff all the time. It's expensive gear. They're cards of the stuff that they shot. And, the, you know, the correspondent from Telemundo, who was reporting on that in front of Miraflores and was himself detained. So, I mean, this stuff is just a bad look, right? I mean, don't you think that it actually has a horrible effect on what people think of the government? When you go to the Hill, I mean, people might not know the, the sort of minutia of of a certain bill, and they, of course, should, of what these sanctions are doing. But they do know that Jorge Ramos was arrested or detained after an interview with Nicolas Maduro at Miraflores Palace. Yeah, look, you know, as I said several times here, I'm not going to defend anything that the government does that's wrong. Uh, I'm more concerned, since I'm a U.S. citizen, I have to be concerned with uh, the massive uh, deprivation and loss of life uh, that our government is deliberately causing right now. And that's my uh, main concern. Mark Weisbrot, I very much appreciate you coming on. And I hope that uh, that you got some time to to uh, present your 
side of things without me rudely interrupting and um, and uh, yelling at you or anything. <laughs> so. No, thanks. I think it was a, a good discussion. It was a fun, good discussion. Mark Weisbrot, you can um, find him on Twitter, and it's at Mark Weisbrot, right? Yeah, that's right. Mark Weisbrot, thank you very much. Um, I appreciate you coming on. Thank you. The fifth column, 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 column. column.